Matt and I today wanted to take a few minutes um, in lieu of announcements. We're having what we're calling community time because there was a conversation that we wanted to have and Matt was going to start. He's fiddling around no, with good. this. Okay, you're good. Okay, yeah, good, thanks. Good. Okay. Debbie wants to announce that she's pregnant, everybody. Oh. <laughs> Stop. Congratulations to the Manning family. Yeah, okay. they're wonderful. Does everyone hear a theme here? Who do you think gets on our team you know what thrown actually I love is under the bus all the time? was most afraid of Debbie. Oh being upset on Tuesday morning. He knew that he'd be met with warm and welcoming hands when it came to me, so yeah. that oh, speaks gosh. loudly. Friends, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, we want to welcome you to the space, and like Debbie said, we are going to bypass our normal announcements just to do a brief community ask and talk about money, which is, um, that's why you're here, right? Like, that's why people come to church, is you want to hear pastors talking about money and how you can start giving more. That's what we're going to, that's what we're going to do. Um, but uh, let me first, just real quick, make it all about me, if you'll allow it. And because um, here's what happened today, you guys, is that I got up this morning and I was thinking about this moment and I started going on to Google and I Googled, how do you make an effective, I, I, honest to God, I'm not lying, how do you make an effective fundraising pitch in a short window of time? And I started copying and pasting. I'm not talking about sentences, I'm talking about paragraphs. And then I started saying it out loud and I was like, wait a second, what am I doing right now? And so let me just um, skip the script and just be real with you. This is a big weekend for me. Not, not just because I'm wearing my first sweater of the season, though that's significant in its own right, but also because I hit seven months of sobriety as of last night. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. At some point, you guys, I'm not going to keep talking about it, but, but um, we're not there yet. It's a big weekend for me, though, because on the first day of sobriety, I met with my therapist, and I was in tears saying, There's, there, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, this sounds like Mission Impossible. I can't... Um, I, can, I guess I can conceive of what it would look like, but it just, I don't think I can do this. I can't make it through the day. I'm not going to make it through the week. And she goes, here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to make it through the next seven hours without drinking. Said, That's feasible. Then she goes, then let's push it to seven days. And then we'll talk about seven weeks. And then we'll talk about seven months. And I thought in that moment that there is no way that that was feasible. And yet, would you look at me now? Here I am still doing it. And I think uh, I wanted to talk about that in this moment, in a moment like this, because I need to tell you guys thank you uh, so much. I wouldn't be where I am today in general, but sobriety specifically without the support, the love, the calls, the texts, the reminders that you're in my corner, people who have daily, weekly told me that I'm capable of pulling this thing off. I am where I am today because people like you have stood in my corner and that's not a small thing. It matters to me, and I want to say thank you. And I'm bringing it up in this moment we're talking about money, because if you ask me why it is that I give money to the table, I would tell you what I just told you. I want to help out here because I've been helped here. My marriage is better because of this place here. I'm sober because of this place here. My kids are supported because of this place here. Our city is being healed because of this place here. And actually, on that latter note, that'd be the other side talking about help. I help out here because I've been helped. But I also want to help out here because I truly believe that this place is helpful. I mean, you can cite your own history, but in the past few weeks alone, when you consider, when Terry Gould stood up and said, we have a bunch of Afghan neighbors who are moving into the city and said, we have needs, immediately... This small little community put together hundreds of kids, continues to do so, and raised over $21,000 to support local refugees. That's not a small, that's ridiculous. 
I believe this place is helpful. Go back even further in your history. You think about when George Floyd was killed. You think about all the things that went down in the aftermath of that. When we saw targets and grocery stores go up in flames and parents not know where they're going to get the next diapers for, we said, Look, we're going to put out a pallet. Can you offer up some donations so we can help out some people? And next thing you know, we have like three semis full of donations that we're bringing to local uh, neighbors of ours. For five years straight, this church, every Sunday, has spoken the eternal echo of God's love over the lives of people who thought they were outside of it. This place is helpful. It has helped me and it is helpful. And I want to start there because we really need your help. We're in a place right now where we need your help and that's where I'm going to hand it over yeah. to you. So, um, ditto what Matt said. <laughs> ditto, <laughs> we're done. Um, what happens here matters. And the reality is, is that in the last year, we've averaged about a $3,200 loss every month. Now, as my daughter-in-law, Jenny, who works in healthcare, would say, it's urgent, not emergent. Because of our amazing, fiscally smart board, we've got a good safety net. We're not going under in the next six months, so we want to say that clearly. But I think with COVID and people getting back into the rhythm of church and new people, that it's been hard to motivate to give. I think a lot of people I talk to walk out of here or when they've heard a recorded message, it's not on their, their mind to go online and start giving. So that's a big piece of it. So we do have an ask. We have an ask, but added to that ask is that we are going to try to hire a um, pastor for our kids' ministry, a part-time pastor. So there's a both-and going on here, but it's an important one because we are committed to our kids. We love our kids. And when I think about our kids, I was listening to the music, that first song where they said, Child of Love, and I was reminded about how many people walk in these doors who have had to deconstruct their religion because they haven't understood that they are a child of love. They haven't understood their belovedness. And I think this community, our team, we have this passion about our kids wanting to know that they are the beloved children of God, that we want our kids to know Jesus, to be able to practice the ways of Jesus, and to bring the good news out into the world. And they do that in part by watching you all, by the modeling that we do when we love one another and care for one another and serve others. But there's some stats that are really important here. So when we started out, when we left CPC four years ago, we had six kids in the baby and toddler room, and we had eight kids in pre-K through kindergarten. To date, and this is just what we have keeping track of, there's a few people coming in and out, we have 18 babies and toddlers in the nursery, and we have 28 kids pre-K, one in fourth grade. That's our stretch. So that is pretty amazing. So our hope is that um, we can add an additional $30,000 to our budget this year for this position because um, it's really important who takes this position. And we want someone who loves Jesus and loves kids and is passionate and is fun and is going to want kids want to come to church and be part of all this. So here are the, the, the ways that you all can help us. And it's a big ask, and we're going to just say that up front. If you're already a recurring giver, 
if you can up your giving 15%, and that's only if you can. We know that many of you are not in a position to do that, but if you can, we'd be so grateful. If you're not a recurring giver and you're able to be, all you need to do is go online, go under the um, giving tab, and you can set up a recurring giving. It really helps us with our budget if we can know what that we can count on every single month. And then the third way is a one-time donation. You guys have been so generous in the past with that. Um, but to be honest, we really count on it. Like, that's a little bit of why we're behind, because we are not quite sure what our one-time don donations will be toward the end of the year. So that's the third way that you can give. And here's the other thing. When you leave tonight, there will be a text going out to everybody that's part of this community, and there will be a link to our giving page so that if you're able, if, it's, if you feel called to, um, if you call this place your home, I mean, we would be so grateful if you would go on that link and do what you can do. So that's all I got. Yeah, yeah, but also like if, you, if you're not on the texting line, you're not gonna get that text. So if yeah. you, do you have that texting slide, Sarah, just for people who if, they're, if they want in on the texting line, they wanna be perpetually stocked by the table community, this is the best way to sign up to do so. You text the word table, 233222, and not only will you get that text tonight, you will get much more than that. You guys, thank you. I think what's hard about the ask from Matt and my standpoint is you're so generous, and you've been so generous, and we have been like blown away by it over and over again. Sorry to have my back to you. It's but okay. um, uh, just thank you. We're grateful for you guys. Yeah, before we just move on, can we just pray over that? Because yeah. we're at the end of our ropes, and especially, we should be praying all the time, but especially in these moments where you are very aware that we're at the edge of our own resources, we believe in something, we want to keep the lights on, and the thing moving forward, we go to God with us. We bow your heads. Christ, you have given us a community of love, of support, of generosity. It's all good gifts because you are the good giver, and we are grateful. Uh, we are not naming these things with despair in our hearts, God, but with hope because you are the provider. You are consistent. Um, and we're banking on that to be true in seasons like this. And so, God, be in our hearts as we consider how we do want to love one another and co-create this community together. Expand our vision. Expand our imaginations. Give us confidence as we take on these days to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, thank you, guys. I know that that can sometimes be a uh, difficult conversation and mildly uncomfortable, especially if you have a history of running into churches where you've been spiritually manipulated into coughing up cash. Uh, trust me. Well, I don't know if I have the authority to apologize on behalf of the whole Big C Church, but we are so sorry for that. For um, Mark, where's Mark Schmeeves? I just saw that. Gwen, is it Gwen Shamlin? Was that the documentary that was on HBO? That's honestly what was in the back of my mind. Don't sound like Gwen Shamlin when you're asking for money. Do not. Whatever you do, Matt, don't do that. But I want to be perfectly clear about this right here is that I don't want you to feel spiritually manipulated to move towards generosity whatsoever. God's love for you is not being restrained until he receives an offering from you. That's not how it works. You are as loved now as you will ever be, regardless of what you do with what you have. And that's obvious, but it should be stated again and again. We are just trying to co-create this community together. And offerings and finances is one of the ways that we do that. We believe in this community. I hope you hear that. We believe in what's happening here. We, we need churches like the table to thrive. 
I mean, personally, when Debbie was speaking earlier, I don't remember exactly what you were saying now, but when I think about my own kids, my kids at home right now because I got some colds, um, I want them to grow up inside of a church like this. I want them to grow up learning about how loved they are by God without like cultivating these phobias of other people. I want them to, to learn what it looks like to be a person with open arms in a world of bald, bald fists. Like this is the kind of place that we need to exist, a place of welcome. And I actually want to talk about that part right there. We are in a series called This Is Us where we are looking at our values that we share that shape our collective vision for who we are trying to be. And tonight I want to name our core value of being uh, radically inclusive, which has really been one of our aspirational aims from the start. I mean, I'll spare you all the details that surround our origin story, but the initial impetus behind why we exist at all, why we are here, was really because not enough radically inclusive places did. Not enough places were making enough spaces for all people to walk in and feel seen and celebrated and safe and welcomed and wanted. And so we wanted to make one. That's why we actually don't even belong to any denominations. That's no shade on denominations. They're, they're fine in and of themselves. But by definition alone, what comes with the denomination is different barriers. and. Well, we've seen a lot of people get hurt when they try to make that hop over those hurdles, and we did not want to create more of that. Too many people have been injured in churches like that, uh, be it atheists or agnostics or queer people or disabled people, all those people that were told that you have to go outside of Jesus in order to find yourself inside of a community. We want to be clear that that is not true, that that is a heresy, that that is false. Listen, if there is a way where you can actually use the Lord's name in vain, it, it isn't when you say God instead of gosh, it's actually when you lift high the name of Jesus and insist on keeping out the children of God. That's abhorrent, that's abuse, that's heresy, that's vulgar, and it's not gonna be tolerated here. For we are people who gather around the Lord's table which by definition alone means that we do not have editorial power over that guest list. Jesus does. And Jesus has made it clear that all are welcomed and all are wanted, period. And I want to talk further about that tonight. I want us to look at a text from Luke 15. This is kind of like, I don't know if there are power rankings of different scriptures out there, but if there were, this is a top five text. It is the moment where Jesus just packs a punch. And so Luke is going to set the scene like this. Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. In other words, the bad folk, like the people you don't want to run with, people you don't want to get caught with. Caught with. Luke uses the word there, the tax collectors, and that's kind of like a, a cover-all cartoon character stand-in for all who are complicit and corrupt. And in case you missed that point right there, he kind of seals the deal by saying, and the sinners. Everybody that your mama warned you about, like that's who we're talking about. All those people that you're supposed to steer clear of, all those people right there are running towards Jesus. And the trippiest part about this whole text is that Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't run away from the people that are running towards him. But some other people do. In the same scene, you have uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law who walk in and they see what is happening at this table around this rabbi and they say, that's, that's not right. They shouldn't be eating with him. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Did you hear that right there? These people are present in the room and they're not being addressed as so. 
They're being third person. When we got together last weekend and we sat in this room and we listened to Nazarene share her story and Debbie asked her, what is one thing that this community right here should know about our Afghan neighbors next door? She said, please humanize us. Please don't see us just as a them. See the eyes inside of this us. Recognize us as individual peoples. See our stories for what they are. These Pharisees, the scribes, they step into this room and those are thems to there right there. And raise your hand if you've ever felt like a them in the eyes of religious folk. Yeah? Yeah. Raise your hand if you've ever heard somebody say to you what these fellas right here are saying to Jesus, like you really shouldn't be running with people like that. Just me again. Okay, no, there's a few more of us out there, good. It's interesting, you know, because I'm looking around this room right now and there are people in this room who have lost people in their lives because they call the table their home. I, I myself have received hundreds over the past five years, hundreds of emails and phone calls uh, and texts, all like basically amounting to people who are writing in all caps ways saying, you shouldn't be sitting down and dining with people like that. This problem of exclusion and inclusion is as old as the church itself. It actually predates it. It goes all the way back to the origin story with Abraham where people were said, these are the chosen people of God, which by in and of itself meant, are there some people who aren't? All of a sudden dismissing the whole call in Abraham's life that you are a tribe. This can be a blessing for all the other tribes. You are a tribe to end all tribalism. Have you ever actually considered how beautiful that is? I'm going way off notes and anything right now, but just consider Abraham right there. Genesis 12, when the voice comes to him and says, leave the land, your father's home, and start walking in this direction, Abraham proceeds to do so, catches the call that says, I'm going to make you a people that is good for all people. I'm not going to make you a people that's just about your people. I'm making you a people that is going to be a table where the food's going to be on and you will feed everybody. Nobody's walking away on an empty stomach. That has been the vision all along, and Jesus is reinstating it right here. And the, and the Pharisees and the teachers of law, they can't have it. I mean, theologically, their worldview is that, Jesus, if you are to be a representation of God, then you really can't be in relationship with those that God wants distance from. That's not how it's supposed to work. And that's just one of the more absurd things you'll ever hear. I mean, was it not Jesus himself who at one point said to the fellows, Hey, um, if you're trying to figure out what God is like, just consider how you parent your own kids. If your kid asked for some food, would you give him a snake instead? Is that what you think God is like? Would you really go out on a limb and define God's holiness as God's inability and unwillingness to actually be with you when you are at your loneliness and most broken place? Is that how God's holiness is really to be defined? I would submit to you it is not. That is a terrible view of God. In fact, I would go to the opposite place and say that not only is that not God's definition of holiness, it is exactly God's inability to be separate from us in our most broken, in our most lonely, in our most like tiresome places that defines God's holiness. That's why Paul says what could actually, when you think about all the crimes we've committed against one another and against ourselves, what could actually though, is there anything that could separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Jesus is living into that vision right there and some other people in the room have yet to catch it. And so they start making these accusations at Jesus and as exhausting and as frustrating and as tiresome as it can be to be told that your fidelity to Christ is an act of infidelity to God, Jesus doesn't ball his fists 
He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't puff out his chest. Instead, he turns to the Pharisees who are standing in the doorway with their creased brows and clenched jaws, and he says, do you mind if I tell you a story? Actually, I'd like to tell you three if you have the time. And then he proceeds to do so. Jesus says that there once was a man who was a shepherd and he had a hundred sheep. And after a long day of being out at the pasture with all these sheep, the sun went down and so the sheep came in and he was gathering them all in the barn. I don't really know how farms work. There's a barn involved with sheep though, by and large. Yeah, correct. He's gathering them all in the barn and he does what shepherds are supposed to do. He starts counting them off one by one. And he's, he's going one by one by one by one, but he only gets to 99 and he's sure that he has 100. So he does it again and he does it again. And he does it again. And he's still stuck on 99. You know, I, I love the fact that Jesus is very clear. He says multiple times that when you see him, you see the Father. Because it tells me that when we hear this story, we're not only hearing about the methodology of a shepherd, we're hearing about the mathematics of God's heart. And the heart of the shepherd, the heart of our God, says that I will not be satisfied with a 99% inclusion rate. That's not going to cut it for me. If Joe isn't here, if Melissa is missing, we're not all here. We might have some folk here, but the family is not all here. There are empty chairs, and they belong in this space. Jesus says that despite the rain and the sleet and the snow outside, he, the shepherd, went out looking for the lost sheep. And when the shepherd finds it, he throws it on his shoulders. And he carries it back home in the dark where upon arrival he brings out his best wine and he calls in his closest of friends and they have a party. And then Jesus says, this is actually what heaven is like. When somebody that was missing is now that somebody that is here, we're going to get loud and celebrate about it. Because it's a big deal. People's lives matter. Nobody should be excluded from any particular table. And so when we find the person who was missing before and we bring them back home, we will have a party each and every time because nobody is to be dismissed. Every story has grounds for celebration. This is what heaven is like. Now, be in this room when the initial story is being told. Jesus is speaking and the story is going out to uh, one particular group that's standing at the doorway, but there are two different listeners. For the people that are at the doorway, the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, the ones who are coming in with utter contempt and disgust for what they see at the table, they have to be thinking like when they hear the story about the shepherd and the sheep, ah, I get it. I, I, get, I get what you're getting after, Jesus. Local rabbi, I understand what you're, what you're saying right now. You are saying that those nasty folk all around you, those are the sheep that have ran off into the night and you are bringing them back home. You're appealing to our reason and our rationale and I suppose I understand. As long as we're clear, they're like, I'm not those sheep. Like, I've never cost God a night of sleep. I've never made God go searching out in the middle of the night in harsh weather conditions for me. I have always been where I was supposed to be, but I'll play along. As long as you can get the runaway sheep to come back to the barn and live like us and act like us, us 99 who never left the stable, then, then so be it. Well, we'll go with it. Jesus doesn't really stop, though. He goes into story number two, and he starts talking about a woman. This woman who has 10 coins, and one of her coins goes missing. Story is pretty brief, but he says that this woman ended up flipping her house upside down, and when she got to the final couch cushion and she flipped it over, there was the coin. And when she pulled it out, she too called her friends 
and they all came over, and they also had a huge party. They started to celebrate because the one who was missing has now been found, and every story is worth celebrating. And now you have both listeners in this room who are kind of appropriating the story to fit their own needs, right? You have the Pharisees, the rabbis, the priests, the religious folk who are standing in the doorway going, no, no, Jesus, we really do get it. You made your point with story number one. Story number two felt a little unnecessary, but it still stands true. And I'm sure the people that Jesus is defending in this moment, who are at the table next to him and by his side, they're probably thinking very similar things. But the beauty of what's happening here is that Jesus is lovingly, compassionately baiting them both. He's bringing them both into believing that the other person is the missing coin. The other person is the lost sheep. That they are the right and they are the wrong. This is the found, those are the lost. But then he gets to story number three. And Jesus gets to story number three and he moves from 100 sheep to 10 coins. And then he says there was a man with two sons. I love the movement of this teaching. I love how Jesus is going about this work. He goes from 100 to 10 to let's make it really clear and pragmatic and just leave it at two. 110, two, two sons. And one day the younger kid comes up to his dad and on the farm he tells his dad, I don't want to be here anymore. I have no interest in taking on the family business. Um, I want to be gone. I want to leave you. I don't want to be your son. I don't want you to be my dad. I want my inheritance that you are going to give me when you die. I want you to live as if you are dead right now and cough it up. I want the money right now. And the dad gives it to him. And the boy starts to run. And we call him the prodigal son. Prodigal is a word that means wasteful, which um, I don't know if that definition works here. You know, because ultimately, if you know the story and you're familiar with it, you know that he eventually does come to himself. Eventually, he does learn things in the far country that he could have never picked up at home. Eventually, he has his rock bottom moment that he could have never reached had he just minded his P's and Q's and stayed at the farm and kept his mouth shut. There are some lessons that you have to learn in the far country that you can't pick up at home. And so not only does dad allow him to leave, but dad also finances his trip. And the boy runs until finally he runs out. He, he reaches what we call in the AA tradition his rock bottom moment. He is in a hog pen in a place where the pig owners won't even let him eat the pig food. That's how bad it has gotten to, for him. And yet in that space, at the bottom of all things, in that place that he never dreamed he could be, beyond his worst nightmare, he starts to gather this sense of what is happening beneath him. He starts to smell the flavor of the Imago Dei that is at the core of who he is, and he remembers that I am not slime, I am not a slave, I am a son, I have a home, and this hog pen, it isn't it. And so I'm going to go back home now. The kid comes to himself and he turns back home. He's got the apology script in his hand. He's going to try to figure out how do I charm my way back into my dad's good graces. And before he can offer up the words that he's recited the whole way home, the dad is out there reaching to him. And he says to his dad, dad, can I just come and at least bare minimum be a servant? But the dad is wrapping him up in a robe and he's sliding a ring on his finger and he says, you have always and only been a son. 
The dad calls on the people back home and says, bring in the fatted calf. Call in the neighbors next door. I don't care if they did know my kid. They're going to come over here and celebrate because my kid who was gone is now here. He's here. And at this point, it feels redundant, Jesus. I mean, I know we talk all the time about Jesus being a good storyteller, but it feels like at this point he has made his point perfectly clear. And if I'm a Pharisee in that room, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that you already told us the lost person, coin, whatever, sheep, animal, I don't care. The lost thing is now here. It's found. Got it. Noted. Okay, we'll be good. You're appealing to our reason. We can make space for their humanity. We can move on as long as they fall back in line. We will we'll play along with your compassion for the lost folks like them. But then Jesus says, can I tell you about the party? Because the craziest thing happened. This dad has this party. The fatted calf is, is being roasted. But then the dad, he, he's not exactly on the dance floor. In fact, what happens is the dad gets into the room and the younger son is there with the robe and the ring. And the dad goes, wait a second, where, where's my guy? Where's my kid? Not the young boy that was off in the hog pen and that smells like a mess is now here. I'm talking about where is the boy who should be celebrating his brother right now? Where is the one who I want more than anybody else to be in this space with me? Where is my eldest son? You know, that's the first time that he asks that question. He doesn't go out looking for the younger son. He meets him on the road when that boy comes home. But in each of these stories, you've had somebody who's lost something and somebody who's gone searching for something that was lost. And do you know how you know the person, the coin, or the animal in the story that identifies itself as the lost one? You ask, what was the thing that somebody went out looking for? Do you know how you know which coin was lost? Well, the woman went out looking for it. Do you know how you know which sheep was lost? Well, it's the one that the shepherd went out looking for. Do you know how you know which boy was lost? It's the one that the dad went out looking for. The dad goes out looking for the eldest pharisaical son who's not at the party celebrating the new life of his baby brother. And he finds him not in some far country, but in his own backyard, head resting against a tree, tears streaming down his face. And he climbs up next to him and he sits by his side and he says, what's going on? Where are you right now? It's a powerful story because the boy, he is fixated on the party that's happening for his younger brother. And yet he says to his dad, my whole life, I have been slaving for you. And not once did you even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And yet this kid, this punk... This Joseph with a coat of many colors who can do no wrong, he comes in after wasting his life, after wasting all your money, and you're going to throw him a party? What? Where was that for me? I don't... Where has that been for me? And some of us in this room, we can feel that. In the same way, I'm sure those Pharisees, they felt that. For some reason, there are people out there who exclude on the basis that to include is going to cost them something. To allow other people at the party somehow means that I must leave. It, it means less cake for me. But the dad, he hears the complaints of his son, and he doesn't say, you know what, you're right, my man. Uh, I, I screwed you over. I have treated you like a slave. That's on me. Uh, can we go back inside now? 
Instead, the dad reacts and says, slavery? Is that really what this has been like for you this whole time? His dad says to the son who is sitting outside of the party, the son who is standing in the doorway asking Jesus, why are you letting those people that close to you? The dad says the most, one of the most powerful lines in scripture, he says, not my slave, but my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You see, in this moment with these two different groups, Jesus isn't defending the tax collectors saying, they can be here. He's actually looking at the Pharisees and saying, and so can you. Once you understand that everybody belongs at the party, you will make space for everybody to come into the party. Once you understand that you have always been beloved, that you have always been at the party, you're no longer tripped up with fear and panic about him coming in and her coming in and them stepping in. The dance floor is wide open. I'm gonna close with this because it just came to mind. It's crazy to me, but three years ago, Doc Nielsen, Chris Nielsen, uh, died on this day. Three years ago, he rode his bike into eternity. Amazing man. All of us who knew him are so much better for it. And um, one of the things that I love most about Doc Nielsen as I was reflecting on his life this morning is that Doc was somebody who, when he had his, when he had his hog pen moment, when he had this moment where it's like, how I am is no longer how I can be and I need a better way forward from here. He didn't just come home and reserve the rights to his own party. He insisted that the dance floor stayed wide open. He kept growing more and more open, playing the music louder and louder, celebrating all stories more recklessly and generously. And I hope to God that even if he's not here right now, that that is in us who are. That we would be a people who insist that we don't move you know, from one fundamentalism to another form of fundamentalism where we exclude those who once excluded us, that we would recognize that we are always at the party. We're always on the dance floor and we would love nothing more than for other people to join us. That's what it means to be radically inclusive. That's what our aim is here. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are the one who makes space for all people, God. You are the one who calls each of us beloved. Help us to believe that that's true. Whoever our thems are that are standing in the doorways, God, the people that like, we probably agree that they're welcome but don't necessarily want them to be welcome, God, give us softer hearts. Give us convictions that reflect the character of Christ, the open-handed nature of generosity that you are, Jesus, saying everybody belongs, everybody is loved, and so let's throw a party. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen. There we go. I think one of the things I love most about the rhythm of taking communion together every week is that I'm always reminded that we remind one another that everyone is welcome to the table. It really is this time that we pause and that we know this taking of the bread and the cup is a party that everybody's included in. There's no criteria. We are beloved children of God. And on top of that, what I love about Matt's 
message tonight is that we're continually pursued. It doesn't matter where we are in the journey. We are continually pursued. We are always loved, and we always belong. On the night before Jesus died, he took bread, and he broke that bread. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember me. He took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant for everybody. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And so as you take your little cup, you can open that out and be reminded that you belong. You're included. And hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you. And as you take that cup, be reminded that this party's for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. quick announcement before we leave. Next Sunday night is Halloween at the table. Yay! Which means that we're not going to be meeting at 5 p.m. We will be meeting at 3 p.m. Kids wear your costumes. Christian will too, so adults, that's open. Also to you. Wow, wow. That felt good. Not the applause I was hoping for. Okay. If you have kids that like to wear costumes, um, bring them. I don't know. Do we have a plan yet what we're going to do with these kids' costumes? There's going to be a parade. Yeah, trick-or-treating throughout the building. So um, that's going to be awesome. We're doing it at 3 and not at 5 because we're talking about cultural engagement. It's our final value in our series, This Is Us. And so it'd feel real stupid to talk about cultural engagement while making you be not culturally engaged in your own neighborhoods around you. And you see the, the math doesn't line up. So please um, come next Sunday, 3 p.m. Let me close this. Friends, this is the, the gift I think that we get to give one another every Sunday when we come together is to remember who we are, that we are at the party, that we have nothing to prove, that, that this is not a room that is holding an audition for you to prove your worth, that you are loved, accepted, safe, and seen, and we celebrate your story right now. And we do so in this moment right here. Will you close your eyes and hold out your hands and hear the heart of God for your life? Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, 
There will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. Go in peace. We will see you next Sunday at 3 p.m.